I thank you, Father, for the time of the prayer furnace this morning where we got to come together as a church and pray for our nation specifically. Now more than ever, we need your grace, we need your justice to reign, and we need, as Christians, to have our hope not in a president or in any legislation, but we need our hope to be in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We've come upon a passage that reminds us of your unshakable kingdom, and so I pray that you would give us a, a faith that knows deep within our bones that your kingdom is truly unshakable. Give us that confidence and that hope this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. With election day upon us, massive tensions have been building in the year 2020, and many are predicting that a volcano will blow as the election unfolds. Whether it's more rioting due to a Trump victory, or whether it might be a refusal of a peaceful transfer of power, or even possibly the revenge of the left to take away more freedoms. Only God knows the future. But it doesn't hurt to prepare spiritually for whatever might come this week and the months ahead. We have another passage here that if I were asked, Kurt, preach a passage the week before the election, out of any passage in the entire Bible, I may have chosen this passage in Hebrews 12. This is to, again, praise God for his providence and choosing a book months ago that has as Hebrews itself says in chapter 4, is a, a living and active word. And so his word, we know, speaks into whatever situation we're in, in a very living way. So we're thankful for our living God who, who aligns passages with the times we're in. So I'm thankful that today we get to be reminded of Christ's unshakable kingdom. If you remember from last week, there was a great contrast between the worship at Mount Sinai, and the worship at Mount Zion. Throughout the entire book of Hebrews, there has been a contrast between the old covenant system, which is passing away, and the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the great high priest who is ushered in the new kingdom. Last week, we were called to worship now that you have received a kingdom, and that in a spiritual way, you are surrounded by that great hall of faith, and you are worshiping the king with the angels in his presence. That's what we're doing right now, saints. We are spiritually worshiping the king with the hall of faith surrounding us and with angels surrounding us, even though we can't see it with our eyes. And so the great temptation for the Hebrews was continually to go back to Mount Sinai, to go back to what was comfortable to what they knew. And so this week is a logical conclusion or outworking of what we heard last week of the kingdom that we have received, a kingdom that has been inaugurated and ushered in by Christ, and also a kingdom that is yet to be consummated, a kingdom that we look forward to its full, sinless fulfillment in heaven one day. We have arrived, saints, at Mount Zion. You get to worship in Mount Zion today by the Spirit. Amen? Amen. So, in light of that reality, the thesis is simple. Because Christ shook earth and heaven, we must worship his unshakable kingdom. I'll say that again. Because Christ shook earth and heaven, we must worship in his unshakable kingdom. Two points this morning. First, we'll see the shaking of earth and heaven. What does that mean, and what does that mean for them and for us? And secondly, we'll look at the unshakable nature of Christ's kingdom. So are you following along with me? You there? Great. All right. So, shaking earth and heaven. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. 
It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned, from, warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Before we get a proper understanding for us of what it means that he's shaking earth and the heavens, we have to ask, what does it mean for the Hebrews? We, hopefully we've trained that in your mind. As you're reading the Bible, you always ask original author, original audience. So before we can say, oh wait, 2020 feels like it's shaking. I'm going to import this passage right into my situation. We have to do a good um, job handling this text, being faithful to its original author. So it's vital that before we understand the significance of this passage for us, we have to know its meaning to the Hebrew audience. So significance and meaning. It is clear from verse 26 what the author had in mind. He says, yet once more, that this shaking of the earth and the heavens is a single event. When you say yet once more something will happen, you mean it will happen once. And so he's not talking about a timeless principle, but he's talking about a particular matter at hand. What is this matter? The second temptation we have when we read a passage like this, when we read shaking earth and heavens, is to immediately think new heavens and earth. It is tempting because the language is so extreme here that we think, okay, well, if he's going to shake earth and heavens, nothing like that could possibly happen now or nothing like that ever happened in the past. He must be talking about the second coming of Christ, the cosmic coming down of the sun to judge all the living and the dead, and certainly the earth and heavens will shake when that happens. And while it is true that the heavens and earth will shake when he comes again a second time, I submit that the author of Hebrews is actually referring to the shaking of the old covenant religious system upon the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom, not at his second coming, but at his first. Not at his second coming, but at his first. So in order for us to get the benefits from this passage and to say, okay, what does this mean for me when I feel like the world is shaking in 2020? We have to make sure we get the original meaning right. I believe that the shaking of the earth and heavens here is talking about the old covenant order for three reasons at least. First, the context of Hebrews. We know that the entire book of Hebrews has been the contrast between the old order of the old priestly system and the new high priest. Even last week, we saw that Sinai was the representation of the old covenant. And they are no longer there, but they've arrived at Mount Zion. And if we even look at verse 28 in our passage, it says that after the removal of the things that are shaken, let us be grateful for receiving, that's present tense, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so if the author of Hebrews is present tense addressing his congregation and said, let's be thankful for present tense receiving this kingdom, and it's a once a one-time event, he cannot be referring to the second coming. The, the grammar necessitates, in the context of Hebrews 12 and the whole book of Hebrews, points us to the shaking of earth and heavens at the first coming of Jesus. So I'm persuaded first by the context of Hebrews, especially chapter 12. Secondly, we have to know that he's not just making this up. N never does an author of scripture do this, but like the author of Hebrews often does, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. 
And so we have to look back at Haggai chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, to see the context of the Old Testament passage he was quoting. I intentionally had the sin and confession being read from Haggai so that you get some bearing of that book. Uh, I pray that that book isn't too dusty on your shelf and it's not been too long since you've been there, but just in case it has, you just heard it, so you're at least familiar, familiar with what Kirk gave us, a little context of Haggai. If you, he's quoting directly from verse 6 here that, that the, the heavens and the earth are shaking. But to back up a, a verse in verse 5, it says, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So he's immediately talking about the covenant that was made with them when they came out of Egypt. That is the old covenant in verse 5 of Haggai 2. And then you jump forward a few verses later in verse 9 of Haggai 2, it says, the latter glory of this, the later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so what he's contrasting is the former glory of the old, um, the old temple and, and the new that we are to wait for, the new Mount Zion, the place that, that the new covenant believers are set to worship on. And so the context of Haggai also reminds us that um, this is talking about an old covenant contrasting with the new, which Jesus ushered in and inaugurated with his entire high priestly ministry. The third thing, reason I'm persuaded that this is not talking about the second, but the first coming of Jesus, is that we don't have to stretch our imaginations far to remember how Christ shook the heavens and earth and dismantled the old covenant system whenever he came. Matthew 27, 51 says Jesus, about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So we have the earth shaking when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies when he goes to the cross. Similar passage in Luke twenty three forty five, when the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So we have the earth shaking in Matthew and Luke also talking about the curtain splitting, the old covenant barrier that, that went between the Holy of Holies and the people. In the same sentence of that old, that old temple and the old curtain being torn down, you have the earth shaking in Matthew, and in Luke you have the sun's light failing, the heavens shaking as well. These physical realities are pointing us to the spiritual reality we heard from Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So, Pastor Kurt, why does all this matter? Why spend time trying to convince me that this is about his first coming? For the Hebrews, it was a matter of life and death. If they went back to the old covenant order, they would be destroyed eternally. Remember, verse 25, it says, For they did not escape when they refused him who warned from earth, much less will they escape if they reject him who warns from heaven. So their very lives are at stake, saints. That's why it matters that they believe that this is a kingdom that they, they, can, they can have access to right now. If they think the kingdom is off way far in the future somewhere, then they are more prone to, to say, well, maybe the old covenant order is still in place. But no, it is so point 
It is a salient point of Hebrews that the high priest has come and he is the, the priest over a new and better covenant that we have access to today. It was true for the Hebrews and it's true for us here in 2020. For us, it's important too because it's a reminder that the old covenant system was indeed shaken and removed. But it's also a reminder that because Christ removed the old covenant system, it is also true that every other kingdom, every other worldview, every other religion will eventually be shaken and removed as well. Remember earlier in Hebrews 10, 12 through 13, he quoted from Psalm 110, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So we see that Christ is seated on his throne now at the right hand of God, ruling over history, and he's waiting to come back. He's not come back yet. He's waiting until all his enemies will be put under his feet. And so not only the old covenant system, but any other system that's set up now, he is subduing them. He's bringing them under his feet until then, and then he will come back a second time. Which begs the question for us, if the problem for the Hebrews was the old covenant system, and that was the, the other kingdom that they were tempted to go back to, we have to ask ourselves, which kingdoms are we currently investing ourselves in? Are you investing yourself in your personal kingdom, your plans, your wants, your desires? How did that go this year? Are you investing yourself in the kingdom of America? Are your hopes riding on the, the future of this nation? The Republican Party? I hope that's not your kingdom. Are you focused on building a kingdom of a little conflict-free utopian life? Again, I pray that that's not your kingdom. It's not wrong for Christians to want peace. It's not wrong for Christians to, to want America to, to do well as a nation, to want justice to reign. It's not wrong for those things. But wants are different from putting your hope and trust in a kingdom. We must first see ourselves as kingdom citizens and see that every other kingdom, whether it be the old covenant system for the Hebrews or for us now, every other kingdom will be dismantled and is in the process of being dismantled by Christ. And so we must be reminded, especially with the election coming up, that we have to put our entire identity into the kingdom of Christ. Everything that can be shaken because it wasn't founded on the rock of Christ will eventually fall. Remember what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So what we must do is make sure that we are not building our lives on a shaky foundation. That we are praying for the peace of our family, for the peace of our nation, and yet that is not ultimately where our identity or our hope is rooted. Because every kingdom besides the kingdom of Christ, all those good things that we turn into great things, they will ultimately fall, and the kingdom of Christ is the only one that will remain.
So, let me make sure I'm getting my page right. Whether it was the pre-incarnate Christ warning the Israelites at Mount Sinai, the incarnate Christ warning the Hebrews with his entire ministry, or the resurrected Christ speaking to us of what we know of his word in 2020, as Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and he is not silent. We must view every perceived social, political, economic, and earth-shaking as a gracious wake-up call to Christians who are not submitting right now to the kingdom of Christ. We are not to refuse the one who is speaking, and we are not to grow discouraged when we see the world around us shaking, Remember, remembering that there's only shaking because he has a better kingdom right here for us now. In verse 25, it says, do not refuse the one who is speaking. If they refused at Mount Sinai, the one who spoke to them from earth, much less will we escape if we refuse the one who is now warning us from heaven. How does Christ warn us now? Remember Hebrews 1.1, the very beginning? It says that in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so I can assure you that the way we can hear Christ's warning, the way we can know his voice in these last days is not through the, the various ways that the prophets got the word of God from Umim and Thummim, from, Umim and Thummim, from, from visions, from signs, from wonders. We know that definitively in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so we can know his word definitively and objectively by reading the word, by not refusing him who is speaking. I think that we do refuse the word that Christ is speaking to us when we fail to apply it consistently throughout our day. Paul says in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I'm sure if I were to pull many of you, many of you are reading the Bible daily, many of you are going through a reading plan, but when it's talking here about refusing the one who's speaking to you, my greater concern is that we're not obeying Philippians 4.8 that I just read. We might do our quiet time in the morning, close our Bible, but the, the question is, do we refuse him who is speaking throughout the rest of our day? How much are we letting our quiet time break, break out and be loud throughout our lives throughout the rest of our day? Or are we compartmentalizing that and then hearing the news, hearing bad reports from our county, listening to our, our neighbors, and allowing all these other words to be the words that actually shape and define our anxieties and our hopes realistically throughout the rest of our day? Part of not refusing the one who is speaking is by meditating on his word throughout the, uh, throughout the day. So that when you do listen to the news, when you do hear the bad news from a neighbor, when you, do, when you are discouraged throughout the day, in that moment, you accept the one who's speaking and not refuse him. In Philippians 4.8, we are commanded to fix our mind on whatever is pure, holy, right, and just, and honorable. So we are not a passive recipient of the, the constant bombardment of, of people and advertisements and news yelling at us. 
we Christians have the power and the discernment to choose what content we want coming in our ears. And so practically, I want to encourage you, let your quiet time not be so quiet. Let it break out loudly and influence your thoughts and your actions throughout the rest of your day. And so that whenever you're listening to the news, it's being filtered through what you read that morning. When you hear about America potentially crumbling, you can say, I just read Hebrews 12 this morning, and Christ's kingdom is unshakable, and therefore I'm not going to be so anxious. Ballots showing up in the trash, God is on the throne. The reason why so many Christians are anxious right now, it's not for their lack of confidence in Donald Trump, but because they have little knowledge or belief in the kind of kingdom that they are to receive and instructions of how to live within such a safe and victorious kingdom, which leads us to our second point, an unshakable kingdom. We need to ask, what kind of kingdom have we received and how are we to live in such a kingdom? Look with me at verses 27 through 29. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What kind of kingdom have we received, saints? Some place the kingdom of God in a future millennial reign. Some place the kingdom of God only in the heavenly places. Some place the kingdom of God only in the hearts of his people. How we understand the kingdom of God is central to our identity as Christians and how we interact with the world around us. What we can deduce from this passage in Hebrews is that the kingdom, as we saw last week, isn't a far-off one-day kingdom, but it is a present kingdom that Jesus ushered in. Even though it's not fully consummated yet at his second coming, we must look forward to that day of sinless glory. Amen? But we must not lose sight of the fact that it is indeed here, right now, as the passage argues. We also see that this kingdom includes acceptable and reverent worship of God. This acceptable worship isn't confined to a Sunday morning, but includes everything you do to ascribe worth to the king throughout your week. So that rules out the kingdom of God only being far off in heaven or only being in the hidden hearts of his people. Jeremy Treat helpfully defined the kingdom of God as God's reign through God's people, over God's place. I'll repeat that again. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people, over God's place. We see this in Luke 10, 11. When Jesus sent out the 70 disciples on a preaching mission, he instructed them to tell the impenitent cities. He said, tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, how could the kingdom of God come near to the cities that the disciples went out to? It was near to them because the king was there near to them because his ambassadors were near to them. You see what Jesus is saying here. While it's true that the kingdom of God is spiritual, it's also constantly being manifested 
physically in our real world. So Jesus can instruct his disciples to go out to the cities, to send them out, to preach the word. And when he arrives upon that city, they say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And it's true because his disciples, who are ambassadors for that kingdom, usher in and make physically manifest the spiritual reality of the good news they have in their hearts. John Calvin said, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. The task of CVBC, my hope, is that we desire and long for and pray for making the invisible kingdom of God visible. We do that by the way we live our lives, by the way we bear witness to the king in how we raise our children. We, we bear witness and manifest the kingdom of God with our checkbooks. We represent the king and usher in his kingdom when we go tell our neighbors and our friends about the good news of salvation through Christ alone. We even usher in the kingdom of God when we steward this building well. Whenever you vacuum the floors, whenever you clean up after eating on Sundays, what you're doing is you are caring for God's building. And it's not the building that matters, but you are, you are loving his people and being good, a good steward of what he's entrusted with us. And so that spiritual kingdom is constantly being made manifest as his children, his people, are obediently following the king in everyday life. This puts a grand hope and expectation behind all those little mundane acts of obedience that you do throughout the week. You are not just changing diapers. I know we've said this before, and I'm in the little kid season, so it's on my mind. You are not just doing taxes. You are not just voting. In your obedience to Christ, if you are obedient and you are worshiping, worshiping him with reverence, then in those acts, you are making physically manifest the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Just as vital to your understanding about the presence of the kingdom is your belief that it is truly an unshakable one. So we have to know what the kingdom is about, where it is, but also the passage here in Hebrews 12 tells us that it's an unshakable kingdom. Listen, while individual local churches can and will be shaken and will fall, while nations that have been built on Christian principles can be shaken and will fall, the kingdom of God can never be shaken. I want you to repeat after me. The kingdom of God can never be shaken. Can never be shaken. Get that deep in your bones, saints. You're going to need to remind yourself of that Tuesday, the rest of this week, the rest of this month, and the rest of this year. Our hope isn't in America. Our hope isn't in an election. Our hope is in the unshakable kingdom of God. Now, when we say it can't be shaken, the temptation, and what I don't want you to think, is that the kingdom of God is like Fort Knox. Or the kingdom of God is like the Fortress of Solitude or the Bat Cave. But what we just saw from Jesus sending out his disciples in Luke 10 is that the kingdom is not meant to hunker down in a basement waiting for the enemy to stop picking on us and waiting to be raptured out of here. But it is a kingdom not to be hunkered down, but to be extended everywhere. 
unlike the kingdom of Rome, which stretched itself too thin and lost internal resilience and crumbled, we have a kingdom that can never be stretched too thin. And so we are called to take this kingdom everywhere, knowing that it cannot be shaken by the kingdoms of this world, but instead will be like a rolling stone that actually shakes the kingdoms of this world, as we see in Daniel chapter 2. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the kingdom of God in Daniel 2:44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just like we see in our passage, we are to expect a kingdom that is to be victorious and overtake and shatter all the false kingdoms of this world. Not a kingdom that is safe and unshakable because it's done a real good job circling the wagons, but a kingdom that's unshakable because it has an unshakable king on the throne. Amen? John Patton's confidence in going to Vanuatu, an island in Polynesia, David Brainerd's confidence in going to the American Indians, Jim Elliott's confidence in going to Ecuador. And I pray that our confidence in remaining here in Silicon Valley is because we believe that the kingdom of God is unshakable and will one day eventually successfully reign here. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in Silicon Valley. Even if our own individual lives are shaken and destroyed, Jim Elliott died with a spear, we might die. Even if we don't see much physical fruit manifested in in our own lifetimes, when we show up in our community, when you show up at your job in Silicon Valley, when you proclaim an unshakable kingdom, I want you to have the confidence that it is a kingdom that will reign forever. When we show up at the farmer's market, rather than viewing ourselves as a little defeated church, we need to have godly swagger and to say, my king owns this place. We mustn't despise the day of small things or see our power in terms of our attendance numbers here. But we must remember that we have an unshakable kingdom. So now that we've established what it means to receive an unshakable kingdom, we must ask, how are we expected to live in this kingdom, rightly honoring our king? While it's true that the advancement of Christ's kingdom isn't dependent upon us, we also recognize that as a local church, we are the chosen vehicle to propagate that that kingdom throughout the world. And so if we are to see it advance greatly here and in the world— We must know how this is practically done. We must know how we are expected to live as citizens in the kingdom and how we are to see it successfully manifested in the world around us. In our passage in Hebrews 12, we are given at least five reasons of how we are to make the kingdom of God manifest in our world and how we are to worship in light of our King. Look with me at verse 28. It says at the end of it, 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So first, in verse 28, the first attribute of us as kingdom citizens must be gratitude. Are you humbled and grateful for the fact that rather than being destroyed as an enemy combatant, that you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son? Are you brimming with gratitude that you get to be here this morning, worshiping the king, knowing that you can have a, a clean conscience and a heaven that awaits you one day, and even the possession of a kingdom now because of his sheer mercy and unconditional grace in your life? Gratitude must fill our hearts. Ephesians 1.11 says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so God, if you're a Christian, God chose you to be part of his kingdom, not because there was anything good in you, but according to the perfect counsel of his triune will. Are you grateful for that? I pray so. The only thing that separates you from an Antifa member is the pure grace of God. The only reason why you're not in Antifa right now is because of the grace of God. Our flesh craves and is never satisfied. But if you are in the Spirit and setting your mind on the Spirit, you can have the most terrible day possible, and you can still be full of gratitude, knowing that you are secure in God. So we are to receive this kingdom with gratefulness, with gratitude. And we are to, it says here, offer acceptable worship to God. This gratitude should spill over into our acceptable worship of the king. We fail in giving him acceptable worship whenever our inner heart disposition is wrong and when our external practice is outside of the word of God. Matthew 5, 8, 15, 8 rather says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Ask yourself, how has your heart been this morning in worship? How has your heart been this week in worship? Have you been honoring the Lord with your lips, but your heart has been far from him? One of the ways, the key ways that we manifest Christ's unshakable kingdom is through our acceptable worship. This not only includes heartfelt sincerity, but true external obedience to scripture as well. Opening your mouth when you're commanded to sing. Making a joyful noise. When you come to church, physically looking around to see those in need, those who you can talk to who may have had a hard week. Setting aside, out of external obedience to the Lord's day, motivated by your heart, of course, but offering acceptable worship, setting aside six days in the, in the week to work hard so that you can actually rest on the Lord's day and worship with his people. These are just a few ways that God demands external, acceptable worship from his people. Yes, we must have sincere hearts. Our hearts must be near to him. But our king is not just the king of the inner spiritual lives of his people, but he wants our external obedience too. So we must continue to see how we can offer more acceptable worship to God continually reforming as we are molded by his word. The third characteristic 
of how we rightly worship as kingdom citizens and propagate his unshakable kingdom is reverence. Reverence. The word here can also mean holy caution or godly respect. I want you to think of the image of someone carrying an expensive Persian vase across a room, carrying it ever so carefully, knowing that you don't want it to fall and break into into pieces, right? This godly respect, this holy fear, the same that if you were to carry a piece of china or a Persian vase across a room. Yesterday, I spoke with a man at the farmer's market who said that he had asked Jesus into his heart, but because we were in the new covenant, he didn't say those exact words, but that's what he meant, he thought that God understood that he, he lived in sin, that God was okay with an unholy lifestyle because he walked an aisle once, he made a profession. I had to remind him that God still commands us to be holy as he is holy. Even though a myriad of ceremonial laws have been fulfilled, and Jesus has cleansed us and paved our way into the throne room of God, we mustn't sin that grace may abound. We are reminded here that certainly our Sunday morning worship must be filled with reverence, but actually our entire lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we must offer continually reverent worship before our King. We must have a holy caution or a godly respect of Christ, not only when you're dressed up and seated here on a Sunday morning, but throughout your week, when you're, when you're at home with your family or in the office with your coworkers or on that Zoom meeting? Are you a different person at church than you are at home or alone? We should not expect to see much kingdom progress in our church or our city if we are drastically different people and not showing reverence to our king in private and at home differently than we do on a Sunday morning. We need to make sure that reverence, a holy reverence, is what marks our lives. And that we don't revert to, to crude joking or to, to irreverent behavior or to, to sinful, idle thoughts throughout the week. We must see that this king is always on his throne and he expects our worship seven days a week. And so we should always want to live with a holy reverence before him. The fourth way we see here is the word awe. Now, awe is very similar to reverence. In this passage, it's actually the only passage in the New Testament where this word awe is used in a positive context. Every other place, awe is referring to a cowardice or a trembling type of fear. But here, it must be used, because it's referring to worship, it must be used in a positive context. We see here that like reverence, we must carefully consider the object of our worship, our, our holy king. And we, our awe, our trembling, our fear that we have before him must remind us that if we are to live as kingdom citizens, God isn't our show that we show up for. He isn't our pet. He isn't our crutch. He isn't our emotional high. And he isn't our butler. Yes, it is true that Jesus is gentle and lowly, bearing our burdens, inviting us all to come to him and simultaneously, he reminds us here that we must come to him on his terms and not our own. We know that our God is a consuming fire. 
And so he will always welcome those who are humble and contrite in spirit. He will always say, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. We must know that he is more welcoming than, than any other person we've ever known in our lives, but he's welcoming on his terms. We can't come to him as the Pharisees tried to. We can't come to him as the kingdoms of this world try to, using Jesus as part of their litany of other gods. But when we come to him in awe and reverence, knowing that he's a consuming fire, he will bring us in, and he will be that lion-like lamb who loves us and allows us, allows us to worship him in his presence so that we can have the right awe and fear, but not tremble for condemnation and not tremble for eternal punishment. We can remember that our God is a consuming fire and enter into the throne room of God. Enter closely, knowing that if we are in Christ, we will not be burned, but when we draw near, only our sin will be burned away. So the fifth characteristic we see here of what it means to be a, a kingdom citizen, a godly worshiper, is to remember that our God is a consuming fire. This is most certainly a reference from the author of Hebrews, a right warning, a reference to all those other warning passages that came before in this book. This was a mixed congregation. There was those in their midst who were hearing these words who were not born again. And so they needed to be reminded that they are, just by the fact of physically mixing in with the rest of the Christians, it didn't mean that they were part of the kingdom too. They need to be give, given a right warning here at the end that he is a consuming fire. And as we saw a few weeks ago and through all our warning passages, if they don't forsake and deny trying to get salvation through the old covenant system, if they try to go back to it, they will indeed be consumed for that fire for eternity. It is true for us today, all those who don't enter in through the narrow gate, all those who don't repent and put their faith in Christ alone, will be eternally consumed. That should fill us with dread. I think another implication of God being a consuming fire isn't only for the warning of those who are Christians and not, but even for Christians, if we are solidly saved, this is a reminder of the same truth we see in 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test that sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has done or has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. This is also a reminder for Christians that any treasure we want to store in heaven, any work we want to do for the kingdom, if it's not done in faith, if it's not done to the glory of Christ, it will be burnt up by this same consuming fire as well. So how are you doing? Do you find yourself grateful? And are you offering acceptable worship throughout your week? Would those around you say that your li life is marked by reverence? The sobering reality is that we have not oriented our lives to think of the kingdom as our paramount 
location, that our identity is rooted and centered in the kingdom of Christ. Many of us have not oriented our lives to prioritize the kingdom of God in our loves, in our decision-making. We are guilty this week and throughout our lives of not having right gratitude, taking for granted the kingdom that we have received. We are guilty of not offering acceptable worship, not being reverent or having awe. And therefore, we deserve the same outcome that Aaron's sons did, Nadab and Abihu. Dylan read in the prayer for reverence before the sermon, Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded, and were consumed by fire on the spot. They thought that they could go outside of God's prescribed means, and they were consumed by the consuming fire that is the Lord. The only hope the Hebrews had when they heard this 2,000 years ago, and the only hope that Cambrian Park Baptist Church has, is the fact that our king, who is a consuming fire, is a high priest as well, and a great one at that. Jesus was consumed by the fire of God's wrath, so that we might die along with him. Our old self, our old ways, dying with Christ, being drowned in the waters of baptism. That's our only hope. The unshakable Son of God, who made the heavens and earth, subjected himself to the shaking and removal of the old covenant so that his kingdom could be populated and advanced by pardoned rebels. And even though in our own pride we preferred our own personal kingdoms, even though they were tumultuous, even though the sinful idols of this world were shaking all, all around us and tossing us to and fro, we in our pride preferred those before Christ. And Christ, out of his great compassion and love for us, rather than swallowing us alive as he did Nadab and Abihu, he came to us meek and lowly, and he welcomed us into his glorious kingdom. He reminded us that we were created for his kingdom. And that on the cross, the heavens and earth literally shook. The author and sustainer of the heavens and earth was shaken by the very thing he created. And when he died and took on the fiery wrath of God, this king took upon your sins and the sins of all his elect so that he might establish his permanent, perfect kingdom forever. This king victoriously rose three days later, ascended, and sat down on his throne, grabbed the scepter with his right hand, and is ruling from heaven as we speak, using ordinary people in ordinary churches like ours to extend his kingdom on earth as it's already established in heaven. Saints, I want to lovingly call you to repent of your refusing to listen to the Savior by not meditating through his word throughout the week. I want you to repent of your hope in any worldly kingdom. Repent of your irreverent worship. Repent of your lack of gratitude. And in doing so, trust the one true king and live by faith in his unshakable kingdom.
repent of your pessimism that his kingdom can be shaken. And remember that this consuming fire, the same consuming fire that should have devastated us all, is now bidding us to draw near so that our sins might be burned away and that we might be more pure and holy and glorious worshipers, equipped to worship rightly in the kingdom and make it manifest in our physical world around us. So approach the consuming fire this morning, saints, knowing that you are wearing the fireproof white robe that has been dipped in blood on your behalf. Church, kingdom citizens, this week and month and year, I can most assuredly predict that the world around you is going to feel like it's shaking. The question is, how will you respond? Let's listen intently to the Son, be grateful for his shaking so that we might receive an unshakable kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Now more than ever, grant us childlike faith to rest in the glory of your kingdom. May we rightly await its consummation at your second coming, but let us never overlook or forget that we have it now. Help us to not hyper-spiritualize it and so write it out of the very essence of our lives, but I pray that we would see that in our faithful acts of obedience, in our reverent worship, we are indeed ushering in the kingdom of God. Just the same way that the kingdom of God came near to the cities that Jesus sent his disciples to, I pray that that could be said of us, that whoever we take the gospel to, it could be said that the kingdom of God has approached them as well. Receive our worship today. I pray, Father, that our acts of faith and our songs would not be consumed and burnt up on that last day, but I pray that they would be done by faith for your glory, that they might echo through eternity and be preserved forever. In Jesus' name, amen.